welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. McDonald. In this episode, we'll be continuing on reading through Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism. And we will be finishing off the section Totalitarian Propaganda. But before we get started into this week's episode, I've got a bit of an exciting announcement that there's going to be a second series of discussions going on on the Patreon page. So that is at www.patreon.com forward slash dissecting philosophy. And the second discussion is going to be talking about Slavoj Žižek's book, Pandemic, COVID-19 Shakes the World. And the first episode is completely free to listen to, so feel free to pop on over and have a wee listen. And the subsequent episodes for that which will be another nine, are going to be coming out fortnightly. And those will all be underneath the second tier, which will be at £5 or your original equivalent. So for the Patreon page as well, there is the two tiers that's available. The first one at £1, which is just for getting your name in the show's credit notes to say thank you very much for your support, as well as a nice little virtual high five from me. So it's the second tier that will allow access at £5 to the full discussion of Zizek's pandemic as it's coming fortnightly. So then, let's get started into this week's episode. So what we'll do is have a very brief recap of points covered from the last episode, having a nice sort of refresh, then going in to discuss the psychology of the masses and why exactly is the totalitarian propaganda taking an interest by the masses in the first place, which is a really interesting discussion that Arendt has. And then we'll be going into really the bulk of the discussion dealing with, firstly, a brief history of anti-Semitism in Europe and then discussing the Nazis' plan for the future and the Nazis' anti-Semitism. So, let's get started into a very brief recap of last episode. So... We said in the last episode, totalitarian regimes are concerned with indoctrination and getting as many people as possible to believe in their doctrine. Propaganda is used to indoctrinate people in non-totalitarian countries, justify the regime's actions, and prevent party members from free thinking. Science is used as an idol and the means in order to justify its own doctrines and its quest to transform the nature of humanity. And the key point in all of this is, well, they're not interested in actual science whatsoever. 
History is transformed and manipulated in order to conform to the regime's view and represents a set of good forces that will benefit the future of the country. And in Soviet Russia we have Marx's dialectical materialism and in Nazi Germany we have the idea of the Thousand Year Reich. Then rounding off for last episode we talked all about how the leader acts as a prophet incorrectly interpreting historical forces and will ensure that their predictions are always correct through the use of terror and violence. So that pretty much nicely wraps up the discussion for last episode and in which we can see the key things from last episodes all about the ideas of indoctrination, getting as many people on board to believe in the doctrines and what exactly is the regime arguing for in the first place. Then we have the whole role of science as a means of justifying their arguments, not actually caring in science itself, but rather people accept what scientists say at face value. Therefore, their whole argument is, we're going to also use science, but not care about science whatsoever. Rather, we're going to use it as a tool because people like to accept what scientists say. And therefore, scientists will be able to back us up. And we had that whole example in which Arendt says, Soviet Russia used scientists of renown and then they're made to preach precisely the doctrines or whatever the argument that they want to put forth and then suddenly a scientist of potential renown is made to then look like a charlatan. Then we also have that relation into history itself, transforming history, not just based upon chance events and so forth, but rather history itself is going to be manipulated to justify whatever the regime would like to say. And again, we had the example from Soviet Russia where Stalin wrote the whole new history of the Russian Revolution in which it removed Trotsky completely from ever having control and having ever been commander-in-chief of the Red Army. Of course, the whole thing going back into the turbulent history between Trotsky and Stalin and the whole power struggle between the two of them, in which he then writes out the importance of Trotsky within the Russian Revolution. Which I found interesting as well from the last episodes, this whole relation into the leader as a prophet and the leader is really the sort of conduit for saying exactly what the historical forces and so forth going to be working in their favor. And as we touched upon the last episode, they don't just make up any old thing whatsoever. What they say is going to come true. Why? Because they back it up with violence and terror. And therefore, when they say something, is ultimately saying, this is going to happen. And people will be murdered and killed in order to back up exactly what I say. So the terror and violence works is a retroactively is a nice way of putting it, is a good concept of backing up the claims that's been made. And so then that lets us go into the second half of the section for this week on totalitarian propaganda. 
And the next part deals with the masses psychology and the way in which the masses really are tantalized by the propaganda. Why is that the case? So we'll deal more or less here with Nazi Germany as an example. And as we've said before, in post-World War I Germany, people were suffering due to hyperinflation and unemployment. These real-world horrors provided a basis upon which people wanted a form of escapism. They wanted to be spared from their miserable conditions in which they were living, and totalitarian propaganda offered people a fictitious world that appeals to the human mind. And so, you could really put ourselves in the shoes of people in post-World War I Germany. The economic situation is horrific. Ultimately, as we said before, there's that picture of children playing with money, stacking it up, making forts out of it, because money has just become absolutely worthless, all due to the fact of the war reparations having to be paid. And this then has that knock-on effect of hyperinflation, as we've just said. Then that, with the whole effect of unemployment, horrific situation, what do people want? They want to feel good, they want to feel better about themselves, they want a form of escapism. And what provides that form of escapism is the totalitarian propaganda. Why? Because it's a fictitious world that's presented to them. Something that looks good, looks nice. Something that would be appealing to people precisely wanting that escapism in the first place. And so this builds upon the next point that people don't believe in their own eyes, their own experience, Facts, and not even invented facts, are except how change and chance transforms reality. Reality is shut off as it deals with topics that are a sore spot. The masses only believe in the imagination. The masses look for consistency to bring all variables and accidents together in one view that is universal and consistent. People are predisposed to all ideologies as they offer a means of eliminating all these variables into a universal and consistent view. And then repetition of an ideological principle provides a consistency in time. And so we have precisely this point, this psychological profiling. Why do people want escapism? Their lives are miserable, and reality itself is dealing with topics that people would rather not think about and rather not discuss. It touches upon that sore spot, as Arendt says. From this, we have then this move, this really interesting move that I just find so fascinating because reality itself is so horrific to people and because they don't want to even think about it whatsoever there's that denial of reality itself not believing in your own eyes your own experience or even facts or invented facts 
Why not? Because you want to believe in the imagination. What does the imagination provide you that the real world doesn't is consistency? So, this touches upon quite a philosophical point in and of itself. That is to say, if you look at what experience the world is, you would find pretty much that what it comes down to is the world is in continual flux, continual change, continual transformation. And the posh term for this is becoming. But what do people want is not this idea of change and flux, but rather people want something that's consistent out of it. And so then does that move towards the imagination? How can you bring all these variables that happen, all these chance things, all these accidents together in one view that's universal and consistent? A nice example that comes to mind is from Parmendes, in which it's an argument against Heraclitus. Heraclitus's arguments based upon all the idea of change and flux and transformation. That's how Heraclitus sees the world. But Parmendes is precisely saying, well, the problem with all that is it's too chaotic. How can I go and analyze things if they're always in this state of, of continual change and continual flux. I couldn't go analyze anything because at one given point, it'll be one thing, and at another given point, the same thing will be completely different. So therefore, how can I understand and analyze the world? So then there's that move away from your experience into your mind, and ultimately, it's the structure of mind that provides the framework for understanding the world. It's a nice, just simple, brief way into a little bit of the philosophy that's going on here. As we said, not only then do we have this move within philosophy itself and the history of philosophy, but Arendt says the masses, this politically neutral set of people that don't go one way or the other, are also philosophical in the sense that they also want to try and find this form of consistency. Something that will tie everything together. And so this is why people are predisposed to ideologies themselves. And this is just so fascinating to me, because here is why people are predisposed, because they all provide different ways of tying everything together. They all provide a nice, clear basis for how you're able to understand the world. So the world no longer is in that whole state of flux, change, transformation, but rather, it's just one consistent view that's based upon a certain ideological outlook. And we've already actually touched upon one idea already, and that was Marx's dialectical materialism from the last episode. Why is that? Because history itself is not thought of in the sense of 
well, what would be history, just all a set of chance events, chance occurrences, and so forth, everything in dialectical materialism boils down to a combination of nature and science with the Hegelian dialectic. As it says from the Oxford reference website, little bit of the quote, driving events onwards towards a progressive resolution of the contradictions that characterize each historical epoch. So on the one hand, as we said last episode as well, we have all this influence of signs, so the one hand, understand the world, combine that with Hegelian dialectics, which we said last episode, is simply the argument that Everything has its opposite. You have an antithesis, and a thesis is the posh way to put it. You have black and you have white. You have hot and you have cold. And Hegel views the entire of history as this mass unfolding events of one thing conquering the other, and then another thing will be conquered, and so on and so on. And then Marx takes this and then applies it to his own arguments. And then Lenin is very much influenced, as we said last episode, by the whole idea of dialectical materialism because it provides a basis for understanding how the revolution unfolded and ultimately providing a theoretical base to it all and also provides the answer that they have won because that's the way in which history is unfolded. And so... In one way in which you can say from this whole example, what is the point of it all? It takes all these chance occurrences within history, removes all the accidental nature of it all, and rather it's not a bunch of accidents or chance events and so forth, but is one consistent ideology and theory that explains how history itself is unfolded. And so we have all this attraction to ideologies because they provide that clear, consistent basis for things. Then on the other hand, we have the totalitarian propaganda itself. So the mass leaders then pick and choose from all the existing ideologies in order to create their entirely fictitious world. Their art consists in using the world and things we can experience and transcending it. These real-world elements are generalized and removed from an individual's control. The consistency of the fiction, which is repeating the same things over time, and the strictness of their organization make it able to convince people of its lies. The strictness of its organization makes it able to survive it being exposed as a set of lies. So, we then have the totalitarian propaganda itself. It's composed from various different aspects of various different ideologies pick and choose, or nice word to say is a pick and mix of a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and so on. It's a collection of everything. And then it's that whole aspect of blending reality with fiction, taking that real world thing that you can experience, and then precisely blending it with the fictional world that's being created. These real-world elements, then, 
as it says, are generalized and removed from an individual's control. And that's an interesting part in and of itself, because we like to precisely think of having a control of a situation, and our choices and our actions are all free for us to choose. But here, it says, well, all these things that are going to be happening within the propaganda itself are out with your control. It's going to be all these historical forces that are underlying all your choices in the first place, for instance. You've got no really control over the forces themselves. And then why would somebody want to believe the fiction in the first place? Or another way to put it is, why would somebody believe in the lie? In this completely made up lie is because of the repetition. The repetition gives it a consistency and precisely gives it an organization at the same time. And one example that Arendt uses is the secret police and their organization and conviction of innocent people. Because what they do, of course, is convict someone and accuse them of having committed a crime and the person in question is completely innocent. So how exactly do you go about charging someone for a crime that they've not even committed or even intended to commit? How do you go about that? And Arendt gives us a bit of an insight into it. First, you remove all the real world elements out of it completely. So anything remotely related back into the world that could potentially be true is stripped out of it. What then do they do from all that is construct an incredibly well-organized fiction. And why do people believe it's true is because the power of its consistency. And in and of itself, it's quite mind-blowing as an idea, isn't it? That here you can have ultimately a completely constructed lie. But it's so well constructed and so well organized and so consistent in what it says. That is precisely the power of what it's doing to people. It's overwhelming, as Arendt says. It overwhelms you, the consistency and the organization of it all. It's not as simple as saying yes or no or I disagree because the power of it precisely comes down to all that organization and the consistency of what is put forth to an individual overpowers your whole sense to say, um, but actually I was having a cup of tea that day or actually I was doing anything other than what you are accusing me of. So I thought a really good example to take all this that we've talked about so far, take it completely out of context and use it into another context to simplify it down. And what is the example I'm going to use is modern beauty advertisements. Why? Why is modern beauty advertisements really good to back up what we've just said so far? Because people do not want to accept what they see or experience. Wrinkles and aging over time. 
what do people want? They want to believe in their imagination. That is precisely that these things are not happening and that there's a way to reverse this. Therefore, following all that, people are predisposed to believing in a product that will affirm this mindset. It's universal because it will get rid of all wrinkles and eliminates all possible chances that they can occur. And it firms consistency because repeated use of the product guarantees that they'll keep wrinkles away. So, as you can see, modern beauty advertisements is a fantastic example to back up what's going on. There's a denial completely of the aging process itself within the body. I hate these wrinkles, they make me look old. Therefore, as soon as you make that move, you move into the realm of imagination. I want these wrinkles to stop. I want the whole aging process to stop. Stop making me look tired and old. In doing so, then, you're in the realm of imagination. Gene Wilder singing somewhere in the background. Then you say, well, I need something to affirm this mindset. Please help me out. Then you have your list of beauty products coming at you for your various different needs. So therefore, the ideology is backing up the mindset. And it's such a great way to think about how at the given time period as well, people want a form of escapism and the propaganda is giving it back to you and affirming all the things that you want to affirm. So then, let's continue on into our next discussion then, which is going to be dealing with anti-Semitism in Europe and firstly giving us a background discussion to it all, set in context, and then we'll get into the Nazis' whole view and talking about the whole Nazis' plan for the future to round us off. So then, when Nazi propaganda appeared, it was not unique. Why was it not unique? Because the atmosphere was rife with anti-Semitism. As Arendt states, not one Nazi slogan was original. Anti-Semitism was part of popular opinion in the 19th century, and it was widespread in Germany and Austria in the 1920s. And I have one example here that the composer Richard Wagner was an anti-Semite, and his dates are 1830-1883, which also is one of the reasons in which he and Nietzsche fell out, as well as Nietzsche fell out with his sister because his sister married an anti-Semitic German army officer and Nietzsche absolutely hated the man. So that's two points in which we can have that sidelined within even Nietzsche's time period of that anti-Semitism taking place as well as Nietzsche himself arguing against views of anti-Semitism. So, we have an article here from the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, and the article's title is Anti-Semitism in Europe, World War One, and it's a nice brief article as well, but it gives us a really 
in-depth look at what anti-Semitism was like during that period. As it states here, three trends that developed during and immediately after World War I brought anti-Semitism, including its racist variant, into the mainstream of European politics. First, for the nations that lost the war, the dreadful carnage on the battlefield, Europe's first experience with mass man-made death seemed to be a sacrifice made for no gain. It seemed inexplicable except by insidious internal betrayal. A stab-in-the-back legend attributed in the German-Austrian defeats in World War I to internal traitors working for foreign interests, primarily Jews and communists, and this legend was widely believed and deliberately disseminated by the defeated German military leadership, seeking to avoid personal consequences for their policies. Like other negative stereotypes about Jews, the stab-in-the-back legend was believed, despite the fact that it was entirely untrue. German Jews had served in the German armed forces loyally, bravely, and out of proportion to their numbers in the population. Second, the Bolshevik Revolution, the establishment of the Soviet Union, and the short-lived experiments with communist dictatorship in Bavaria and Hungary frightened the middle classes all over Europe and even across the Atlantic in the United States. The prominence of individual communists of Jewish descent in the revolutionary regimes, Leon Trotsky in Soviet Union, Bela Kun in Hungary, and Ernst Toller in Bavaria confirmed to anti-Semites the natural attraction of Jews and international communism. Third, in Germany, Austria and Hungary, the stigma expressed in the provisions of the Versailles Treaty System of being blamed for starting the war and having to shoulder the burden of paying damages to the victors created general anger and despair across the political spectrum. The radical right could then politically exploit this anger and despair. Among the new stereotypes regarding the behaviour of Jews that appeared in the wake of World War I and that were deliberately propagated alongside other older prejudices were the following myths. Jews had started the war to bring Europe financially and politically in, into ruin and make Europe susceptible to Jewish control. Jews exploited the misery of the war to enrich themselves and prolonged it to lead the Bolshevik revolution in furthering the aim of world revolution. With their inherited cowardice and instinctive disloyalty predisposing them against defending the nation, Jews were responsible for the pernicious malaise behind the front and stabbed the frightened troops in the back, causing the military defeat and democratic slash socialist revolution. Foreign Jews dominated the peace negotiations and succeeded in dividing Germans and Hungarians 
by artificial natural borders, while their co-conspirators, the domestic Jews, misled the nation into surrender and permanent enslavement. The Jews controlled the complex finances of the reparation system for their own profit. Having established the constitutional democracy, the Jews used it to weaken the political will of the nation. So as we see from the article anti-semitism and history world war one from the united states memorial museum it provides a really detailed background of anti-semitism in europe as well as highlighting exactly what arendt says the nazi slogan was not original and that the atmosphere was completely rife with anti-semitism so let's move on then into the Nazis' plan for the future. And their plan for the future was based on the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was published in 1903. This is a fabricated anti-Semitic text that argues for a Jewish conspiracy for world domination, mainly used as a device for denouncing Jews and arousing the mob to the dangers of Jewish world domination. The text was very popular and sold hundreds of thousands of copies in post-World War I Germany. Arendt argues, though, that the text popularity was not due to any form of racial hatred, but people were curious about how they were going to pull off world domination. And so we have then the Nazis' plan for the future based upon this fabricated text, which is anti-Semitic saying how the Jews are going to plan for world domination, as well as it being an incredibly popular text. And it's interesting how, as Arendt says, that people are not looking to it to be anti-Semitic, although it is being used as a text to promote anti-Semitism, but rather that the larger set of the population would actually just be on that plain curiosity of wondering how exactly do you plan world domination and then pull off the world domination. So what influenced the Nazis from the protocols was that world domination was, was not dependent upon achieving a set of conditions or in a specific future state. For instance, Marxism in achieving the correct set of conditions in which people have class consciousness and awareness in order to revolt against their oppressors. The protocols argued that world domination was a practical possibility. World domination was based upon the power of organization. As Arendt states, the delusion of an already existing Jewish world domination formed the basis for a future German world domination. So, from the protocols then we see how the Nazis took its influence and that the world domination itself could be practically achievable. How is this through organization. And as it states, how things normally occur is always in that future state or in that set of achieving a specific set of conditions. As we just said, for Marxism, 
you have the whole thing built into Marx that people need to have that whole sense of class consciousness. Everybody needs to come to an understanding that they're being oppressed in the first place, recognize their oppression, and then talk to others, people within the labor force, people that they're working beside, and join together, band together, and argue for better treatment, for instance. But all this is dependent upon people achieving awareness in the first place. And then also you have built in the whole downfall of capitalism itself within Marxism. It will eventually happen because that's how dialectical materialism works. That will eventually capitalism will just collapse because of the Hegelian dialectic and how it works throughout history. One thing can't always survive, it's always got to be overcome, is the argument, in a nutshell. But here, it's not based upon trying to get everybody banded together, in which you have to become aware of the set of conditions. It's not upon this future state in which capitalism will eventually be destroyed. But rather, it's something that's practical and achievable in the here and now through organization. And there's a quote here as well. The true goal of totalitarian propaganda is not persuasion, but organization. The accumulation of power without the possession of the means of violence. Which, that's a great quote to pick away at. And let's build upon this and have a good discussion of it. It's not persuasion, but organization. When you see propaganda, you immediately think of the first point. They're trying to persuade people in order to try and gain them and indoctrinate them. Of course, indoctrination itself is part of the whole process, but what is the actual thing behind the propaganda is not just the indoctrinating people, but also the collective organization of people, getting a collective of people together and banding them all together. How do you manage to then do that is through the propaganda itself. And what happens over time is the accumulation of power of this set of people that believe in the doctrine and what it's ultimately arguing for, and that you have a bigger and bigger group, a mass of people. All without the possession of the means of violence. So this in itself, the second part is really interesting because normally when you have power, you think in a traditional sense of you have a band of people, that would be, let's say, a minor revolutionary sect or a minor revolutionary group of people who think a specific way and then therefore they band more people together and they go out and try to overthrow the government or something like that. But here is ultimately saying, well, propaganda works in a way that you don't need to have violence work like that in order to gain power. How is power gained is through the whole process of organization. Just simply acquiring the mass of people in the first place and organizing the mass itself. 
So therefore, you don't need to go out and commit violence and so forth like that because people will be drawn into it in the first place. So building upon this then, what is the idea of the organization, get this collective mass people together, is based on the idea of Volksgemeinschaft, which translates into the people's community. So Nazi propaganda focused on this idea of uh, the people's community and the idea itself has a little bit history into World War One, because it was a means of rallying German people in support of the war. It broke down class divides and elitism and united people across the country, arguing for complete equality of all German people. So as you can see from that, that would be a really great idea in a time of war. That regardless of where you are in society, that is to say, regardless of you're rich or poor, that everybody should be doing their part for the war effort. Everybody should be getting involved and doing something for the cause, ultimately. So really backing up that whole rallying cry of getting the entirety of the populace really in support of the war effort with the whole idea of complete equality as well for everybody because there is no difference between rich or poor in that given situation because everybody could be doing their part for the war effort. So the Nazis took this idea of the people's community then and it didn't depend upon a future state or achieving a set of conditions but could be realized in the present, in the fictitious world of the movement itself. And that's the key thing about it as well. It's not something that, again, is reliant upon that set of conditions, that suddenly everybody has to have awareness of the same thing, or that in the future it could potentially happen. It's a thing that's happening here and now, and we can see it happening, and it's a thing that we can all get behind as an idea, and it's all true within the whole fictitious world of the movement itself, backing up that idea within everybody. That it's something everybody can attribute to in the here and now. As well as the Nazis used this idea of the people's community as a counter to communist propaganda. And this is one of the things in which might pop up in people's minds when you suddenly say, here you have an idea of a people's community that argues from complete equality, while in Soviet Russia you had exactly the same thing that's happening. How do they differ from each other? And that's a really good question. Both Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia shares the same idea here. They both agree that everybody is sat on the same playing field and that everybody's on the same level as a factory worker. However, the German idea, the people's community, because there's that aspect of world conquest, includes the idea that every German could be a factory owner. So it's that whole idea that everybody starts off at the complete basis of everything, but there's that potential 
because of German world domination, that every German could be a factory owner instead. Whilst there's not that in Soviet Russia, everybody's always at the level of the factory worker, and who's the one that owns the factories and so forth in the first place is the government. So we have this idea of the people's community, and this idea of the people's community was a means of preparing for the idea of an Aryan race. Why? Because the idea of equality in the people's community is that it's the equality of all Germans, but argues at the same time for their absolute difference from all other races. So here you have this built-in idea of equality, regardless of who you are in society, rich or poor, everybody should be doing their part for the war effort, but at the same time the German people are superior to all other races. And then, once they took power, Arant says, this whole idea of the people's community really lost its importance and gave way to the contempt for the German people. And that might strike a lot of people as surprising because you would think that the whole Nazi propaganda as well as Nazi ideologies all very much nationalistic in the sense of arguing for the superiority of the German race as well as superiority of Germany as a whole in comparison to the rest of the world. But once they take power, Rent says, their actual contempt for the German people is something that then comes out that was had to be remain hidden whilst they were trying to get in power in the first place. And there's a quote from Hitler from 1923 that says, The German people consists of one third of heroes, for another third cowards, whilst the rest are traitors. You have it straight from Hitler's mouth that you don't have the whole set of German people are fantastic, but rather one third heroes, another third cowards, whilst the rest are traitors. So, from all this we can get into the idea then of we're looking for those heroes then. We're looking for those specific people that adhere to the Aryan idea, blonde hair, blue eyes, of Germanic origin. And this then enabled the Nazis to seek to enlarge their own ranks of Aryans from other countries. And one horrific example that Arendt gives is the kidnapping of Polish children. According to Nazi doctrine, as she says here, Poles had no intellect, and when they planned to kidnap blue-eyed and blonde-haired children, they didn't intend to frighten the population, but to save Germanic blood. Operation Hay February 16th, 1942, Himmler states, Concerning individuals of German stock in Poland, stipulating that their children should be sent to families that are willing to accept them without reservation out of the love for the good blood in them. And then 
Another example is in June 1944, the Ninth Army kidnapped 40 to 50,000 children and transported them to Germany. So here we have precisely the Aryan idea, all affecting the way in which people are thinking, not only about the German people themselves, but also the rest of the world has to adhere to this one ideal. So everything then focuses upon race origin. Nothing is more important than somebody's origins for their race. So from all this then we can say the Nazis originality and their use of anti-semitism was that it demanded non-Jewish descent in order to be a member. SS applicants had to trace their family trees back to the 1750s to demonstrate they had no Jewish ancestors. A career depended upon Aryan physiognomy, which means facial features and expression indicative of ethnic origin. Himmler selected candidates for the SS by looking at photographs, example we have here. The Nazis transformed the Jewish world conspiracy into the chief element of their reality. And this shows the difference between a totalitarian movement and party propaganda. Party propaganda is based upon opinion, whilst totalitarian movements it is a real and untouchable element in their lives. So we have then this whole focus upon an obsession with somebody's origins to the point in which people have to literally do a family tree and perform a genealogy in order to show that they have absolutely no Jewish ancestry whatsoever and as we said there going all the way back to 1750s and Arendt says the higher up you went the further back that you had to go as well as we can see the entirety of someone's life and whether you're going to be successful or not is all based upon the whole idea of Germanic blood and keeping the blood pure as just said previously and therefore you have to go and select the most purest Aryan features and that then's also a decider upon the fate of someone as well in which you had just that previous example of just because they thought by looking at them these Polish children had Aryan qualities about them that they were taken away from their mother and fathers and kidnapped and taken to Germany instead. So we can then take or at least try to take an argument in which you could try to say well why don't they realize their own racism? Why doesn't Himmler and Hitler and just your everyday person who's bought into the doctrine, why don't they realize they're being racist? And it really builds upon that point that the Nazis' anti-Semitism is not just an opinion, but made part of real lives. It's not a matter of debate, but part of people's physiognomy, ethnic makeup. As Arendt states, questioning the validity of anti-Semitism and racism was like questioning 
the existence of the world. As stated near the beginning as well, the totalitarian world that is created is a reality made to compete with the world itself. So this is why just simply going up to whoever it would be, officer and so forth, pointing at them and saying, you're a complete racist, I hate you. In their own minds, the whole anti-Semitic part of it is completely real. There is no falsity in it whatsoever. It's no different ultimately than the necessity of breathing air. It's ultimately part of the world itself. But here we can say it shows as well the very handicap of the totalitarian world. That despite claiming to be it is not at all logical, consistent or organized. Consistency itself is flawed as demonstrating a collective people are enemies of the state is flawed in itself because no two people share the same arguments. And this is the example in which Arendt uses one from Soviet Russia in which you band a group of people collective together and say they all share the same view of this. People believe it because of the consistency of the argument. But at the same time, it shows the absurdity of it. All these different people don't share exactly the same opinion. In fact, some people could be trying to make constructive criticisms against things. But it goes back into that point. No two people ultimately share the same arguments. As well as we can build upon those points that the science is merely used as a formality to make people believe in what they say. But any actual scientific fact would counter any of their lies. Any actual engagement, like we've said previously, with party politics would demonstrate the fragility of their arguments, as well as any actual police work would demonstrate the lies of the secret police. So what ultimately do we have is everything is based on a fictional, illogical and racist portrayals of people in order to fit into their own agenda. And really we can just say what is one of the key things we get out of this section for Iran is a nice way of putting it is she's saying for people to wake up and smell the coffee. That is to say people are so attracted to the imagination, forms of escapism, but it really gets into that point of you need to wake up and smell the coffee at some point. You need something good to slap you back in the face, to bring you back down into reality. Because once you are brought back down into reality, then you can precisely touch upon all those sore points that you're trying to miss out on the first place. That you're trying to just overcome through a form of escapism. No, is the argument to this. No, you do not try to overcome sore points or pro problematical points within everyday life and try to cover them over and sweep them under the carpet. You have to deal with them. There are things that are real world problems. We shouldn't be trying to go into seeking things that deny what's actually happening but rather we need to address these actual problems as they're going on, like hyperinflation and the problem of unemployment. And 
waking up and smelling the coffee in this given instance as well is not believing the imaginary idea that the Nazis portrayed into the German people as well of the Jewish population having a nice holiday camp experience but were actually in concentration camps and dying en masse. So another way of putting it as well is that once we accept the actual horrors of reality then we can get into an actual practical solutions that are beneficial for people and therefore we're not drawn into this completely idealistic world that's been created for us that's completely fictional. So overall then what can we say rounding off is that people are drawn to ideologies as they provide a consistent and universal basis to the world. Totalitarian regimes create a fictional world that is appealing because it appears to provide this universal and consistent basis. Anti-Semitism was rife in Europe before, during and after World War I. The Nazis were drawn to the protocols of Zion as they argued world domination could be practically achieved through organization and not dependent upon a set of conditions or a future state. The idea of a people's community provided the basis for the Aryan race idea as it argued for complete equality and superiority of the German race. For the Nazis, race origins were the most important aspect of everyday life. This made the Nazis' anti-Semitism part of everyday life by focusing on people's family history and physiognomy. The totalitarian regime is flawed as it is a fictional world. Real world examples such as actual signs or actual police work shows their inconsistency and illogical nature. So then that nicely wraps us up for our discussion of the section totalitarian propaganda. In the next episode we'll be continuing on our discussion into the next section totalitarian organization. So feel free to check out my Patreon page. It will have that free episode talking about the first chapter of Zizek's pandemic COVID-19 shakes the world and that's at patreon.com forward slash dissecting philosophy also feel free to drop me an email at my address dissectingphilosophy at gmail.com tip me a coffee at coffee.com forward slash dissecting philosophy ko-fi.com forward slash dissecting philosophy and lastly i can be found on twitter at i am a rubber man many thanks for listening and i hope you'll join me next time <laughs>